Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is William Kaufman, a writer and director whose films include The Hit List, Daylight's End, and Bad Cop, as well as the action sequels Jarhead 3 and The Marine 4. His latest is The Channel, starring Clayne Crawford and Max Martini as brothers who pull an extremely ambitious heist and then have to get themselves, their loot, and their crew out of New Orleans alive. It's just landed on digital and on-demand across North America, and you should check it out. William picked Michael Mann's Collateral, the 2004 thriller starring Jamie Foxx's Max, a Los Angeles cabbie who makes the mistake of picking up an assassin named Vincent, played by Tom Cruise, and spends a hellish night driving around as Vincent goes around killing people, with Max as both chauffeur and hostage. It's man at his most stripped down, and the result is a claustrophobic, intimate cat-and-mouse picture where every element feels urgent and nervy. Also, how often does Tom Cruise play the bad guy? This is someone else's movie. You know, I was a fan of Michael Mann's Forever. Um, that's what drew me to the film. Uh, I've I've been a fan of, of Mann since, I'd say, probably Thief. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I just loved his sense of style. And as I was growing up as a young filmmaker, and, you know, I was that little nerd running around with a video camera. And so growing up as a filmmaker, my taste kind of evolved. And Michael Mann was one of the early guys that I saw that kind of said, I could do things with action, but do it with drama. And um, so that's what took me on the Michael Mann path. And then, you know, eventually, like everyone I love, or everyone who should, I, I love Heat, right? And um, and and then I came across, I heard about Collateral. I was killer excited. It was cool to see him doing something that he would call short format, two mm. hours. Yeah. And, and, um, and I, I went in and watched the film and I, I just love the fact that I had no idea what was going to happen, who would make it. And you, they truly, you know, all bets were off. Yeah. I remember seeing it at a preview screening, uh, like, a, you know, a Monday night or a Wednesday night. And I guess we can talk about spoilers. The film's almost 20 years old. When, when Mark Ruffalo just gets plucked right yes. out of the film, there were gasps because he had man has that innate ability to cast exactly the right person to kill. I don't know how else to explain it. Yes, uh, yes. It's, it's that it's guy that, that has heart, right? Yeah. And oh, I love that guy. I'm so glad he's in. Oh. Yeah. Um, and the the one time he the one time he doesn't do it is in Heat, where Kilmer just seems to have a target on his back for the entire picture, and the tragedy of it is that he survives, but he survives alone. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean the, the the final scene of him looking up at at um, Ashley Yard, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, was just a, a little heartbreaking. So that's yeah. I mean, I agree. He is the guy you knew wouldn't make it, um, and I, I think that's that was a, about this film. Is I mean, Jamie Foxx's performance is so endearing, and and um, and Tom Cruise is doing something and looking in a way that we've never seen him look, and. Um, it, it was it was kind of like wa- reading this really cool dark film noir novel, you know, some really cool, um, you know, pulp fiction, you know. It's brilliantly written by Stuart Beatty, uh, Batty, and um, and I think I heard Man talk about his plan on it was he loved shooting at night. He loved the idea that night the night sky was his uh, was kind of a smothering compression. It was a it was a it was a feeling that was keeping people down. And then now you're in the middle of this city that 
if you if you don't know it having lived there, you know it after having watching millions of movies. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. it was just such a uh, you know this awesome you know maze of 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 damage, right? And um, these fantastically developed interesting characters. It is such a strange challenge too for Michael Mann. The the sky, the look of it, the digital feel of it. I mean, this was his this was his sort of tipping point for man into full digital to the point where the opening scene I think is shot on celluloid, right? And then they switch to digital as soon as they get out of the airport. And you're stuck in there. You're stuck in this noisy, messy HD. The camera was a a Viper, I think. And it was the first time someone had shot a feature with it. And I have to say, I have never, ever been a fan of man's obsession with digital. I think his thing with getting really, really close with a tiny camera to an actor's face is really interesting. But in film after film since then, he's just, he, he's gotten grainier and messier and the tech isn't always up to where he wants it to be. Uh, you know, like Public Enemies looks flattened out and the, you, can't shoot a, you can't shoot a period film with a digital camera the way he did. Because it, just, it makes everybody look like they're running around like they're kids playing dress up in a backyard. That's, I said that when I saw it and, you know, there I am going in to love it. And um I wasn't bothered by the Viper on collateral. I mean, you think about this big camera that had a tethered hard drive mm-hmm. that these guys were operating and it was, it was the newest tech. I, I, I still love the way collateral works, but I had that issue with Miami vice and a lot of Miami vice looks cool, but then he really pushed the envelope on the, the, the light and the ability of capturing all the grain and then watching public enemy. And you're, you're just going, well, you nailed it. It's like everyone's in dress up, especially after watching films like Road to Perdition, right? Yeah, we and it's so. and it's not necessarily man's fault. Like it's partially because the gloss in so many, you know, like prestige movies about those eras have have led us to believe that we think we know what it looks like, like The Untouchables, right? right? Where everything is just right. burnished gold and bronze and brass uh, and and wood. Um, and maybe Public Enemies. I mean, I'm sure that he's meticulous about set deck and and costuming i'm sure it's supposed to be accurate but it just didn't play collateral is the one that i was going to say i was dreading the 4k release that came out a couple of years ago because i was convinced it would make it look terrible but of course they went back to the to the film prints and that kind of works it it does have especially in retrospect with what he's done since it has a, a really distinctive look that feels right. Everybody feels a little sweaty. They're all wearing long, you know, like long sleeves and and suits, but they look like they want to take them off. And and yeah. the, the the grain sort of works with skin tone and with perspiration. It's it's the one film of his where the experiment worked for me. Well, and what's strange is that films are getting better. Off, you know, films are also getting better, better of post grain. Mm-hmm. Help it look more filmic. Yeah. And and which is is, I don't think the the guys you know my age and young and older, we don't understand that our kids grew up on digital, and they don't see what we see. Right, they're oblivious to it. If anything, I think that the the older films that were shot on film. I took my daughter to a double feature of Blade Runner. She's like twenty years old. Double feature of Blade Runner and then the new Blade Runner. Right? Okay. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. I, you know, and, um, it's night and day. Yeah. And she, she, uh, she, she liked the new one better and, and we didn't talk all the way home. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I wonder, yeah, when you think about, and man was certainly part of the, the bee smoke and the and uh, shadows thing in the 80s. Like the keep is almost all smoke. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. of course, no one talks about the keep, but I'm fascinated by that film and will be until the day I die. Uh, he has gone away from that into this weird naturalistic thing that still wants to be stylized. I mean, look at, yeah, look at the vistas in heat and the way the water and the sky like, kiss each other on that horizon oh, line. Yeah. On film, it's gorgeous, and then he tries to restage it later, and it's it's sort of there. But even look, Black Hat has a couple of shots that try to, to to evoke heat, but digitally, and I don't know that I don't know that they succeeded. But yeah, what he's doing in Collateral is finding the bridge. Like he is he's marrying the disciplines in a way that I I think is the only time it's worked for him. And also, just the fact that he convinced Tom Cruise to put silver in his hair. That sells it more than anything else. Yeah, but just like to look different, to look older, it is, it's the other piece of the puzzle because that aesthetic and his gray suit and white shirt and just the look he has for the film, it feels like some other sort of weird fusion is going on. And part of that is just like the the last time Tom Cruise is willing to be a villain, Um, which is something he's like, he's always been good at pushing himself to be unlikable, but he's so terrified that people will not like him, uh, right. they, they'll, they'll won't see it as a, as a performance that he never does it. But this is, I wouldn't say it's the best role he's ever had, but he is so, so good. And it feels like, I said this about Magnolia a while back, that it was the last yes. time he, he listened to a director, but, yeah. but maybe it was collateral. Maybe that was the last time he, he let someone push him out of his comfort zone. Well, and I think, um, you know, and I, I I think that Michael Mann and Tom Cruise's personalities mm-hmm. as artistically um, ambitious and driven as those two guys are. I mean, Michael Mann's not a pushover. Neither one of them are. So I imagine they had some challenging moments on it where Jamie Foxx on the side trying to crack jokes. <laughs> but um, I think that, I think you're right. I was just about to say that the only other time I can really, I mean, like in Magnolia, he plays a pretty dislikable character but he does such a good job of showing heart as well that, um, but I, that's another amazing performance, but I, I just, I would say collateral is my favorite. I'm never sure. (laughs) There's so much good work to choose from, right. Which is never a bad thing. And, you know, and then you, you think about the original pitch, which was that De Niro would be the taxi driver because they wanted to flip the the the, oh, ta- wow. the yeah they wanted to flip the Travis Bickle thing. I um, never knew that. Yeah, knew. well, there were a bunch of people who were who were briefly cast. Um, Man came on because Russell Crowe was going to play uh, Vincent for a while, okay. and he brought that him on is- after yeah because of the Insider, and it was supposed to be Russell Crowe. This I, I cannot imagine this would have ever worked, but it was supposed to be Russell Crowe and Adam Sandler. Oh wow, I had heard for like a, a minute, um, Cuba Gooding. It was, yeah, was yeah. up for Jamie Foxx's role. He's on that list and I, too. And I think that they decided that it was too much of a Jerry Maguire reunion that they changed their minds on it. But interesting yeah. stuff. That would have been interesting. You could, you could kind of see. I can. I would have watched that. <laughs> it would have worked. Yeah. Especially because you'd have the psychological thing in the background. Well, why are they fighting? They like each other. You're right, right. You know, that, that push and pull, but then there's casting against type, and then I can also see man being such a perfectionist that he'd think it would just take people out of the movie from the first minute. Well, I think it's also cool that, like, Jamie Foxx coming in and taking that role on, 
I mean, Jamie's very much an alpha male guy himself. Mm-hmm. Plays such an indecisive to the outside world kind of weak, you know, which he's actually very much an everyman, you know, people talking about what they're going to do. They're never going to do type thing. Yeah. And I thought that in itself was like a, 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 a kind of a hidden me- message of Michael Mann saying, you know, you can say you want to be a filmmaker, then go, go, go make movies. You know, it's, it's uh, like actually live your dreams. So yeah, that, I love that scene. You're kind you kind of referred to, which is between, vincent and max and they're both doing a really good job of fencing and and sticking each other back and forth about you know why do you do what you do why do you do what you do you know yeah you got vincent over here is this just machine shark in the water like a a, a, some masterless ronin you know going around and he just watching him and uh, i it's almost as if he's he's so incredibly curious about the character of max like he's looking at him like huh this is what a man this is what a like a regular person is yeah a, a civilian yes exactly yeah i kept trying to figure out the first time i saw it it's like is he trying to figure out a way to spare him is he trying to find a way to justify not killing him because you know i mean that's obviously where the, the the twist of having it be jada pinkett smith's character that he's trying to stalk is great but it's pretty much a given the minute this guy gets into the car that Max is dead, that yes. the, that, that is his plan. Um, and, and then and his MO, right? That's what yeah, we hear in it's the what movie. he does all the time. Um, yeah. But but on second viewing, I, ju- I was watching Cruz and it's just like, I think he's trying to get a psychological profile. I think he's trying to find out if this guy is going to put up a fight. And everything he does is designed to provoke and everything that Max does is just to deflect. Right. And they, they do finally get agitated with each other about halfway through, especially once Max starts panicking and understands what's going on. But he still, like his instinct is to get out of the way, which also kind of explains why he hasn't achieved anything he wants to. Because right. obviously in a, any tight situation, this guy's just going to try to make peace and fold. And so yeah. the film becomes Max's journey to, it sounds so dumb, but you know, like self-actualization, which makes Vincent his life coach. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And what you said is super smart that I hadn't looked at it that way. And you're, I know now you're right is the idea that he is analyzing the risk potential of this. It's not that he yeah. has a problem killing someone. What's the, there's some quote about, you know, if, if everything's going to be forgotten in 50 years, how, how relevant is it? I, why shouldn't I kill someone if they're in my way? Mm. You know, and I, yeah, that's, a, that's really interesting. Yeah, it just keeps coming up with new and not new interpretations, but it's it's it keeps revealing new pieces about these two people every time I look at it again. And I hadn't I probably hadn't watched it in 10 years uh, uh, when the Blu-ray came or the, when the 4K came out and I got the chance to really revisit it. And it's just like this was really good. It's yeah. it's weirdly forgotten, I think, because Miami Vice has been reclaimed by the film dudes or the dudes right. rock cinema or whatever that contingent is. <laughs> yep. But, and maybe that's the one he really had his heart in because man didn't develop this project himself and it came, came on to it after other people had passed and all of that. But I think like Michael Mann being a journeyman and jumping in and doing the best possible job with something is a secret strength of his that no one gives him any credit for. Yeah. And, and I think that his, you can watch movies uh, like Thief and Manhunter and, and again, going into Collateral 
Yeah. They're very different kind of movies than the, the big epics like Mohicans, right? Yeah. So I think that um, I think he just excelled at telling a small story with huge stakes and and um, you know just such a tight, well paced script, you know. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. This week, I'll be writing about Criterion's exquisite new set of the Bud Boddicker, Randolph Scott renowned westerns, and the essential restoration of Cheryl Dunye's The Watermelon Woman. And speaking of Tom Cruise, I'm still working on that epic look at the Mission Impossible movies. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. You like reading about movies? I like writing about them. Come check it out. And it does come back to his core strength, which is the the thing he does best, I think, is tell stories about people who are the best at what they do and then right. just show us how that is rather than have other people say this guy. It, with the exception of Heat, where both both sides of the of the story have to be kind of grounded in in excellence and people are over right. and over saying that guy's the best and he's fantastic and you'll never beat him right. just so we get this the sense of the tension when they finally come together. But he really does just like even with Ali um, get out of the way of the characters and show us frame it properly. You know, we, we see that we see the passion, we see the drive, we see the fury. And then here you just watch Tom Cruise as a ticking time bomb. And it's it's that. Yeah, it's the I'm silently judging you moment in Magnolia where there is nothing more terrifying than Tom Cruise waiting to do something. It's right. just really unnerving. He's got some yeah. bizarre quality, like a predator just coiled on a on a on a tree branch waiting to jump. And it's and Which makes sense that you said Russell Crowe would have been up for it because I think of, oh, yeah. of Bud White in LA Confidential gripping that chair. Yeah, you know, yeah. The point like, oh God, what's he gonna do? You know? So it's a really good point. Sure. Good call. Um, yeah. And it makes, and again, it makes Jamie Foxx dynamic simply because we are identifying with him. We, we are sympathizing with Max from the get go and watching this poor struggling, just, just this, just this guy, like he, he has nothing but his head. Like he has nothing but his, right. his mind. His, his car is useless. He can't do anything. It's identified. And every time he go, he leaves the car, something terrible happens and he's punished. It's his only safe space, but it's also the thing that ties him to all these murders. Just like to be boxed into that space with Jamie Foxx and occupy it. Um, did you see Locke, the, the one with Tom Hardy driving a car from, I think, Bright, no, I... Brighton to London in, or Birmingham to London in an hour and a half in real time. It's just him in a car um taking calls and, it? and it's really good it's it's really smart and again it understands that you can use the framing device of the vehicle as um like a tiny landscape like a stage for the character and what it's, was the what was the smart. grillo film that came out was it wheelman or something oh yeah i think wheel i think it is wheelman or drive yeah, away where the whole thing is in that car and yeah. that was um yeah that was, I mean, that I, that's a really... It's a big swing. It's a big yeah, it swing. Yeah, it is. It is. 
Oh yeah. Speaking of casting, um, I, I don't want to, I don't want to miss out on the fact that the film is a stealth transport transporter picture because everyone decided that Jason Statham is playing Frank Martin in this. Like he just shows yeah. up, hands a case and walks away. That's exactly what that character would do. Yeah. So it's either yeah. that or now it's, he's the guy from his fast and furious movies. So I, you know, he's shot. No, I so. definitely think he's trans- transporter. He's a transporter. Definitely think he's transporter. Okay. Because, you know, there's going to be a Reddit thread about this someday. We have to be ready. (laughs) Um, You know, one thing I've always loved about him, which I thought when I first heard it in the original Miami Vice series, was his use of music, Mm -hmm. right? And how he's done a really good job of, um, I mean, his scores are like a character and add so much and tell so much story within the scenes. And he, I mean, even the, what was the, um, black hole sun, the Chris Cornell song that plays during the montage with the coyote. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, you know, that came out of nowhere and I just, I loved it. And I, I, I know some people that's not their thing, but I, I, I really responded to that. Oh yeah. No, he had me with, um, in Agata de Vida in Manhunter, where it just becomes the, yeah. the most oppressive, anxiety-inducing thing you've ever heard. Yeah, uh, it's it's the rare filmmaker who can color a song for me after I see their movie. But that was one where it's just like every time I hear that, I'm like, oh, why am I nervous? Oh, right, 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 right. There's a bad man somewhere. Yeah, uh, and here he's and his thing too with the occasional love of temp track music. There's a track in here from Ridley Scott's 1492. Um, by Vangelis, which surprises me every time I hear it. It's like, I recognize that. This doesn't belong here, but it kind of plays. Yeah, I mean, he's also a big Moby fan, right? Mm -hmm. And this was right at that time, or Moby had already by that point had had proven that he could, well, that was the thing, right? Like he licensed every track from his album and and made that a big deal. It was was some kind of first that every track from his, the is it the 13 album? I can't remember which one it was, but every track from that album appears in something. And this was, there was a, I remember getting a press release and thinking, I guess that's something to be proud of, but it feels, I don't know. It feels weird and, and way too commercial, but then again, we all know what Moby sounds like. So I guess it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I want to make sure we cover all the pieces too. Did we leave anything out? This is the, the problem with just, I know something. Yeah, sure. Okay. I would say uh, the other thing that I think that Michael Mann, this movie really shows off was, is the way violence is portrayed. And it's, it is very gritty in your face. It's like you're watching um, real, real shootouts happening. The sequence is murder of the, the punks that tried to rob him. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that looks like I'm, you know, I looked down the wrong alley just as a mugging was happening. So, he, I mean, that's a thing that he does with the handheld use of camera that I find, you know, that I, I respond so well to and have, have definitely, that's definitely uh, influenced how I look at, at shooting action. And he's, you know, he's, he's great at doing like a, a club fever, the shootout in the night nightclub. Yeah, that is that's great because it's chaotic, but you can still tell where everything is. You can there, there's coherence, and it's so different from. I was thinking of the, you know the, the obviously the 
the set piece in heat with the bank robbery goes wrong and and you are just following ordinance wherever it goes and it's right. meticulous and formal and this is messy and scary and you can't really tell what's going on the second ruffalo gets hit you just the whole thing explodes into people racing in front of the camera and I, I and again i get that's his thing with the digital cameras he wants to be right in the middle of the melee and show you what it feels like to be at eye level with chaos right and it, it here is the time that it works like this is the movie where he absolutely captures the thing he's trying the like the thing he's chasing his his forever goal and I think what helps in his action and helps in collaterals, like you said, as chaotic as it was, he does a great job of showing geography. So with his over shoulder, over the shoulder shots, you really get a sense of that Tom is over there, Jamie's over here, and mm-hmm. the Koreans are that. So I, I think just otherwise, it's just a bunch of quick cuts and it's a mess and you don't know what's happening at all, and it's it's not very um, engaging. And I think once once you have a, it can be crazy, but having a sense of w- what things are happening rather than 25 close-ups cut together of people shooting. Yeah. He is, he is meticulous with his camera placement, even when it looks like it doesn't mean anything in collateral. We're always right. in exactly the right place. I mean, just to have a body land on a car, that sort of thing. But he's, he's prepping all the time. And it's that thing, again, the thing he did in Manhunter, the thing he does in Thief in heat, the sense of simmering activity where something is always about to happen and the only person who isn't ready is the audience, like the or, or the audience surrogate and Max in this case. But even then, towards the second half of the film, he starts to armor up. He's He starts to try to be in a headspace where he can respond immediately. And you get a sense of it, too, in his flirting early on, where it's like, this guy can turn himself up. Like he can, yeah. he can elevate his game and, and be... He's not like he's flirting with her, but he's also genuinely listening to her and he's not just passing time. Like there's a connection and he's enjoying himself. And so he yeah, he, he wakes it, up, right? Like he, he rouses himself to it. The, and like you're saying that there's a lot of sincerity in it. It's not just that he's hitting on her. He's actually, there's a spark there that he's made a connection. Yeah. And she curiously the same. Yeah, you, know? you feel like there's a playfulness in that too. And I just thought, even at the very beginning, it's like, oh, if we never see her again, this is a perfect short film. This is a great little yeah. scene. And then yes. we we sort of get this window into what his life could be like. And then Vincent shows up and just derails it completely. And then, of course, the beauty of the script is that at the end, all three characters are back together and then the stakes are as high as they could possibly be. Right, right. He's so good at that. He's just so good at it. Hence why I'm such a crazy fan. No kidding. Well, this does segue into the, into the other question fairly easily, which is the the other question I always ask on the podcast, um, which is what, if anything, you've borrowed yourself from collateral. I mean, I, you've already mentioned that it was was sort of a catalyzing influence man cinema in general, but is there something of collateral that you have specifically lifted or stolen or run away with, or, or just full on built a movie around? a shot, a moment, an attitude? Um, I will say the the sense of tone. Mm-hmm. The film I just made, The Channel, is a, is a, is a one-night run escape, two criminals, and they're two brothers and one of their, their girls, um, and they are, and, I mean, his girlfriend. And so there's this, you've got Clayne Crawford is in the middle, and um, Max... Martini is his older brother. And there's a, this 
push and pull that very much is borrowed from this film and and just the sense of of man in general and and uh, i think that um that compression of time um and and pacing was really interesting to play with and 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 you know the action has always been something that i look towards and and, I, and part of that is just being um you know i have a lot of really talented smart dangerous friends you know these my attack advisors who are navy seals or i have a, a buddy who's a russian spetsnaz commando and as a writer i'm always digging up all these bits and pieces and i i think and I, having them work on, on my films in as much of a way as my films can handle uh, budgetarily what michael mann does with his i mean um tom definitely went through you know a, a very good gun school you know to look as technically proficient as possible and i beyond just the gun nerd side of it i think it's just um it it creates such a such a hyper realism to it you know like you really it's a, it's another layer that adds for the character and i think I, I definitely have tried to keep seeing the value in that and and selling that to my producers to be involved in the work i do and i love that that idea of the and finally on collateral is is leaning on this compressed in a city trying to get out the night bearing down on them and daylight means the end yeah yeah i mean anytime you have people running around with very large you know assault weapons <laughs> you're gonna especially with goalie masks and things right you're gonna think right. about heat here and there and to the point where i no longer can tell if filmmakers are referencing heat that way or if they're referencing reality because people are doing that because they saw heat and it just bleeds back into art, right? Like that's, that's Michael Mann. Like he is so good at defining a thing that it becomes part of the culture. Well, and, and, and referencing back to how heat has influenced this, I, you know, I've just done a bank robber movie. My movie was about the heist happens at the beginning. It's not what the story's about. The story's about escaping. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, someone asked me, oh, you know, are, are you big fans of, of, um, Den of Thieves or the town or whatever? And I was like, um, I know maybe this little movie from 92 called heat, you know, yes, obviously there's winking at that movie all day long. Um, I, I definitely, you know, have, have mad crazy respect for that film, but all these other films there and they're all, they're great films. Um, I love town. The town. I mean, all of them. I, I say, and myself, myself included, um, we wouldn't have the scripts we have. We wouldn't have made the movies we had without Heat and without the North Hollywood shootout. I don't think Heat would have existed. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, true. my my reference materials to my prop masters and wardrobe were not were not any of our the movies we've mentioned. They were to the the museum of the North Hollywood shootout. You know, so the ballistic masks and all that stuff, that's where that came from. So um, they may look like hockey masks, but they're actually ballistic masks. <laughs> so <laughs> This is my lack of knowledge. Thinking. Yeah, that's yeah. my lack of knowledge. Uh, no, 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 up. no. No, just, um, it's, and you know what? If you're going to do a bank robbery movie and you're going to have a machine gun battle, if you don't think someone's going to call you out for, <laughs> for yeah. being hate, you, just, you should go do something else. But it's. I think we did. We've done our own thing with the story, but um, you know, it's. You know, we are a product of 
of what, where we come from. I think it's our goal then with that influence to try and go do, try to do your own thing with it, to find your own angle. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can acknowledge that there is a movie that people will think about and it's, yeah, nodding towards it is always fine because then, you know, nobody can accuse you of pretending you didn't know it existed, but yeah, it's, it's perfectly fine. I mean, God, there's never going to be a, a spaceship docking sequence that isn't going to touch on 2001. There's just no, like that, wrote the, right. they wrote the playbook. That's how it goes. Right. But you can have fun. Yes. You can have a lot of fun. I had someone comp- ask me if if ambulance was a influence, and I haven't seen it, um, and so it's 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 not. Um, <laughs> but you know, yeah, yeah. So, uh, all kinds of me. Uh, you know, I, I was raised on James Cameron and Spielberg and Carpenter, and if you know, if you were to s- roll through my rolodex of, of, of movies, you'll you'll definitely see influences of the people that that I aspired to and looked up to as filmmakers. Which is totally fine. I mean, that's always fun. That's like the psychoanalysis after the fact. For sure. I mean, I have a transition where, and I don't know what the real name for it is, but where the, where the actor starts with his back blacking out the lens and then walking out into frame. And I've referred to that as a carpenter cut my whole life just because that's where I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. You're probably right. Let's go with it. Why not? (laughs) All right. There, we've made terminology. Now we can move forward into the next thing. It's stamped. Yes. My thanks to William Kaufman, whose new film, The Channel, is now available on digital and on demand. Thanks also to Alia Stationwala. She knows what she did. William's not on Twitter. I mean, who is anymore? But you can find Collateral on 4K, Blu-ray, and DVD from Paramount Home Entertainment. It's also streaming on Paramount Plus and Hoopla, and available to rent or buy on various VOD services. For now, at least, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week. <laughs>